Welcome to another episode with the Market Dominance Guys, a program about the innovators, idealists, and the entrepreneurs who thrive and die in the high-stakes world of building a startup company. We explore in the cookbooks, guidebooks, and magic beans needed to grow your business. Market Dominance Guys, dynamic duo of Chris Beal and Corey Frank are back together again, talking with Henry Wodala, the dynamic founder and principal of Real Source Group. His company's specialty business niche? The direct acquisition of healthcare facilities, particularly medical offices and surgical centers around the country. Recently, Henry was introduced to Connect and Sell's Sale Acceleration System, and from there, he discovered Chris's blogs and then this podcast. He is now taking the theories and techniques of marketing domination, which he learned from listening to every Market Dominance Guys episode and employing them to dominate his own market. Listening in on their conversation, you'll discover that Chris, Corey, and Henry are kindred spirits and speak a similar business language. The laws of sales thermodynamics, the self-referential dynamics of markets, feedback loop dynamics, and tactical empathy. What these men also share is a true belief in the practice of having real conversations with prospects over what can often be a prolonged period of time, so that when a prospect is ready to buy, the relationship that has been developed will lead to a sale. Borrow ideas from their insights in Chris and Corey's three conversations with Henry Wodala, beginning with this Market Dominance Guys episode, When the Student is Ready, the Teacher Will Appear. Okay, welcome to another episode of the Market Dominance Guys with Corey Frank and Chris Beal, the Sage of Sales. And today, Chris, it's a special episode. It is the two-year anniversary of the Market Dominance Guys, this little little exercise where we stumbled upon a litany of my problems that I wanted to solve in the sales universe. And I went to you, the Sage of Sales, and you systematically checked a box for me, and it turned into an idea for a book and then a podcast, and then oh so much more, and then our new friend, our guest today, Henry Voidia from Real Source Group here up in Colorado, right, Henry? I think that's where Denver. In Denver, and Henry is the principal of Real Source Group and is on the buy side of real estate assets and helps focus really into the, the capital placement into a really tight niche. We always talk about the riches and the niches on this podcast, and and Henry's got a great story about how he is employing the theory of market dominance into practical market dominance today, using some of the techniques that we've talked about for the last couple of years. So welcome, Henry. Thank you, glad to be here. So I think it's helpful, Chris, how did Henry come into our little market dominance universe? Because I think we have your family members, your your son, and you know, I got my mom. I think that we got about seven subscribers, eight subscribers. Henry was the eighth that kind of just stumbled into our world here. How did this happen, and how did Henry come to be a guest here today? Well, first of all, I have to correct you, and thanks so much, Corey. Thanks for being here, Henry. There was a doe walking out here in my fiance's forest, as we call it, the next door lot. I call it Helen's Forest because a queen should have a forest, and she has two fawns. So I signed up all three. So we're now up to 10 people listening to Market Dominance, guys. 
So okay. I, don't, I don't think they will ever be guests, though. They seem to be very, very quiet, and they've got a lot of work to do out there. There's a lot of stuff to eat. Like our you guests know, are, very, are very quiet and ethereal, too, right? Would you say? I mean, do the thermodynamics of sales, they let that do the talking for them. So. Exactly, exactly. So how Henry and I came together from my standpoint was pretty simple. Somebody said, hey, we got this Sandler deal. So we have a deal with Sandler. So we have a Sandler client. He seems a little different. <laughs> I said, what does that mean? And well, he wants an integration. An integration, we don't do this. Should we charge him for it? Oh yeah, I better charge him for it. We don't We don't want to do integration for something. I mean, he's like 5,000 dials for $1.398. Are you kidding me, you know? Well, I looked a little bit closer and then Thankfully for me, Henry said he wanted us to talk and I had a conversation with him and he just blew my mind, just totally blew my mind. It was like, wait a second, I'm wandering around, I'm looking here, I'm doing, you know, I'm looking at, oh, there's the Tower of Pisa, there's this, there's that. And then I wander into this place and there's Michelangelo painting the ceiling. It's like, holy moly, I didn't know anybody knew how to paint ceilings like that. So he's painting the ceiling by basically taking over an industry that we at Connect and Sell have done more than blunted our pick on. It's actually been maddening for me. The guy done a test drive at a very large commercial real estate firm and it went spectacularly well. And I won't name the firm because God knows I might have to talk to him again someday, but it went really well. And they're calling in these places in Manhattan and basically saying, you want to sell your building right? <laughs> and pay me a commission to do it, which Henry's going to tell us why they say that. And it's just boom, boom, boom. Things are happening. They're really professional. They're on message. Everything's great. We get to the end and they say, well, what's next? And I say, well, this flight school thing is next. It's going to cost you 9,500 bucks. And they just looked at each other and went, how do we ever get 9,500 bucks? And I'm thinking you could sell like two of these chairs, right? But that was my experience with commercial real estate. So suddenly I meet a guy, Henry, who's got not only just a plan, but he's executing already on something that when I hear about it, I go, oh my God. So we spoke and then we've done some work together. And then he was kind enough to fly up to Seattle and we spent a, the better part of a day together not socially distanced properly in a hotel lab. Well, we were kind of like half and half. Discovered that he drinks Lagavulin. So he's a stronger man than I, but I can drink it. But I'm a weak guy, so I'm here with my little McCallum, right? Anyway, what I realized in talking to Henry was he's taken something that could have been an idea, but I never managed to articulate it about what we've been talking about with market dominance, which is time shift your efforts into, I'll call it the closing past. That is take, take your anticipated closing date, whatever it is. Time shift your activities so that they're well before that closing date, build a relationship, build trust and gather information. Do this systematically across the market because each potential prospect has got a different closing date and you get the famous portfolio we talk about running over time, I'll call it the John Jackson portfolio, but you get it with an information flywheel attached to it that lets you dominate in another dimension. So you dominate in time and relationship with trust and you dominate with information by using your sales activities to gather information. The combination as you can tell me, the old mathematician, right? I'm always looking for something that multiplies together because through multiplication, we make an exponentiation and the really big stuff happens. And I was kind of blown away. So we've been working on something. 
that's how we came together. That's my story. Henry's story is from a different perspective. So Henry, would you mind telling us the story? How, why are you on this crazy podcast with us? Haven't, haven't you got a log of a on Adam McCallum. We're, we're ready. Well, I, I think essentially it's almost a bit of the, a mirror image of what you just described, Chris. It was again, a kind of a somewhat securitous path of, of referrals that led me to you. And the origin point of the initial referral was me looking for ways in which to, speaking of multiplication, multiply myself in a way that I can cover this niche that we've built this business around, which is specifically the acquisition, direct acquisition of healthcare facilities, particularly medical office, surgical centers around the country. And although that is a very finite niche, there are still enough assets, prospects, and people and things to know that for one individual to cover it on a national basis, it can be a bit challenging. So I was determined to figure out a way to multiply myself. And the initial thinking was, well, maybe we'll get kind of a contract, someone that's got some senior sales skills and has some experience working with large value increments of investment and kind of use them to leverage myself. And that kind of steered us somewhat in the direction of Sandler, but ultimately what it did is it got me in your orbit because I was fortunate enough to have someone at that organization say, hey, wouldn't, wouldn't the best thing be to essentially for you just to make the call yourself? I said, well, precisely, that's what I'm doing, but I'm kind of at my throughput limit right now. And that's when the introduction to Connect and Sell was made. And after quickly understanding the mathematical implications, what was a lot more exciting to me, although that was impressive, was really the foundational aspects that you and Corey have been talking about because I came across your blog, I came across market dominance guys and really quickly began to understand that there's something far more profound here than simply a way to make more dials per hour. Yeah, I mean, tumbling to that is is not easy. It's you You managed to do it pretty darn quickly. The thing that kind of amazed me is you've done all this work. When we first met, you were, we were talking kind of actually at this fairly low technical level, I, I don't mean, I mean low in the stack, right? Mm -hmm. About certain things about making outreach work with Connect and Sell. And we've made outreach work with Connect and Sell in some very interesting ways so for some pretty big companies. And it's kind of done just right. We call it talk to sequence and it's pretty magic. But you had turned outreach into an air traffic control center for you. But when you think about it, this is what really got me, is your concept was, and nobody's ever, attempted this before, as far as I know, which is one man, one market dominance. And that is truly the Iron Man theme. I think back to the Iron Man, you know, comics, the movie, the whole bit is it's one person with the Iron Man suit can go do so many things so fast and they're so precise that that person can dominate an entire movie, so to speak, or the villains or whatever. But the idea of one person dominating all by themselves, a significant chunk of the economy that's identifiable that you could put a name on, you could put a number on. I don't know how big that number is, Henry, but I'm suspecting it's it's got to start with the B because the folks behind you with the capital don't do stuff that doesn't start with at least a B. And sometimes they have to put other words in front of the B, commas and all sorts of stuff like that, right? We'll be back in a moment after a quick break. (music) 
Connect and Sell, welcome to the end of dialing as you know it. Give your fingers a rest with Connect and Sell's patented technology. You'll load your best sales folks up with eight to 10 times more live qualified conversations every single day. And when we say qualified, we're talking about really qualified, like knowing how many tears were shed while watching Titanic kind of qualified. And we're back with Corey and Chris. So it's it's not a tiny market. It's not like a banana stand. Like, yeah, I could probably go, if I really put my mind to it, and dominate the Port Townsend farmer's market for hard goat cheese. Actually, I couldn't because I, I know who does that at the Chimicum Dairy Place, and she's so good that, no, I couldn't displace her. But I could come up with something, right? Right. It's tiny. But you're not talking tiny. You're talking how many interesting assets are out there to be acquired? Well, in our universe, and we control for a lot of things. So again, right off the bat, we've definitionally siphoned down the commercial real estate world into a property type or asset class, if you will, that is healthcare oriented. Again, it's medical office and surgical centers. So that definitionally already begins to cordon off quite a bit of the inventory that would be under the broader commercial real estate umbrella. From there, we then began to control for certain factors in terms of size of assets, quality of assets, ownership or counterparty types. So I can give you some specifics. In our world, we don't particularly care about properties that are less than 20,000 square feet, just because you're probably never gonna get to a valuation that is gonna be large enough to make sense for our book of clients. It, it just, you don't get any economies of scale in terms of the capital placement. As it relates to the quality, we're looking for generally speaking, higher quality assets, which is kind of a fuzzy term, but we kind of know what to look for. It's a combination of just the physical infrastructure, the quality of the tenancy. And then we also specifically look for the type of counterparties we don't want to interact with. In our world, ironically, what we don't want to do is actually be calling upon health systems or hospitals. And the reason for that is, is that they, like many large institutional type owners, frequently have two factors that don't work in our favor. And we've identified that early on in this business. One is they are slow to move, generally speaking. And they also typically, for many institutional reasons, don't tend to make what I'll call more entrepreneurial driven decisions. And what that means in this world is they are not going to sell on an off-market basis. Somebody in accounting, somebody in finance needs to have some version of a CYA where they can say, well, we went out and we made a market and we got X number of offers and we feel comfortable with the price. Doesn't mean they could have even got the same price directly or frankly, probably even a better price when you begin to think about all the frictional costs we take out of the equation. But setting that aside, we, we quickly learned that that was a type of counterparty that didn't work well for us. None of this is negative in the sense that this doesn't speak ill of those institutions or groups. It's just, we had to quickly distill down where is our fertile ground. So when we do all of those things, getting now back to your question, there's really only about 5,000 properties across the country that we care about. Maybe a little bit more, that's about it. And you know, it's, it's interesting, Henry, you talk, right? I think you're leading uh, the witness there, Chris, about how tight and small this market is with Henry, right? We led off by saying, hey, the riches are in the niches. And I think in one of our earlier episodes, and this gotta be in the first six, eight months or so, Henry has them all categorized, so you probably know this, remember this, Henry, is we talked about how entrepreneurs oftentimes make the mistake, repeatedly encouraged by VCs, by the way, to describe their TAM, their total addressable market, 
as really vast as some sort of advantage, but it's really a huge disadvantage, right, Chris? Because the, the tighter your market, your first market, the better off that you are because you actually have a better chance of your product actually solving a problem that your market has, correct? Yeah, I mean, the problem with big markets is they're generally not markets. So a market is defined as a set. Essentially, you can reduce it to a list and order it in whatever way you want, but a set of entities, folks, whatever, that if you sell to one, it reduces the cost and risk of selling to every other one in that set. So as soon as you come to one that doesn't fit that model, that doesn't that if you sell to one, that one is not advantaged, right? You don't have an advantage selling to that one. You have to kick them out of the market. Mm-hmm. They don't count, right? This is a Jeffrey Moore kind of definition of a market. It puts a, a skin around it. It's almost surface tension, actually. The math is identical to surface tension, but thank God most people listening to this podcast don't know the math of surface tension, so they're not plagued with the kind of dreams I have at night. So it's like how surface tension works. It holds itself together because every molecule in there is attracted to every other one in a certain way, right? Water is funny like this. It's this polar molecule that one water molecule gets close to another one, orients itself so they like each other. Well, if you drop them from the sky, they make little balls called raindrops. It's kind of cool. They're not actually shaped like this. They're shaped like little balls because it holds together. Markets are like that. And by definition or by effect, it's hard to make a raindrop above a certain size, right? You can't make a raindrop the size of a 747, much less the shape of one. It just doesn't work. It breaks apart into pieces, and then the pieces hold together. That's how markets behave. So almost by definition, true markets are always relatively smaller than people think. So to your VC, what you should be saying is there's a set of markets that we've identified if you need a huge investment, and they're related to each other by a common set of needs that aren't perfectly overlapping, but are similar enough that one product with small modifications can jump from market to market. And that market dominance is key because I can't get to all of them unless I can take one because the only safe position in a market is dominance, right? So I have to go take a market. We had a whole episode on this. I was talking about it with somebody today. Take one and then go, okay, what's next? And as soon as the boulder is rolling downhill, and by the way, the guy I was talking to, Matt Forbes, who you know well, said, you've never used the boulder analogy on the, on the market dominance guys. And I said, well, Forbes, your memory tends to be pretty poor. <laughs> so maybe I did, maybe I didn't, I really don't know. But here's the analogy is, I think I, I think I used it. I think I know where I was walking in the San Francisco airport when we were talking about it. But the idea is, hey, when you, when you are trying to dominate a market, it's like pushing a boulder up a hill. Yeah. At the beginning, you're at the bottom and the hill's like this and it's super steep and super hard and you gotta work like a dog and you keep thinking it's gonna roll back on you and all these things are going on, right? Your feet are slipping, your hands are sweaty, you're afraid. As you start to get farther up the hill, the hill gets a little, the hills are like this, like these volcanoes we have here, they go like that, right? And then it gets a little less steep and a little less steep and then you start to feel like, hey, I can move this thing. There's a point where it starts rolling downhill by itself. Don't run next to it. Go get another boulder, the bottom of another hill, right? Because you were strong enough to do one. So the key to market to markets dominance, maybe we should have called this markets <laughs> dominance, guys, but I think people would have just 
they already look at us funny, Corey. So it's not going to help to do that kind of stuff, yeah. right? But market's dominance is the key because unless your offering can, can address at some level or provide leverage at some level across multiple markets, you are an idiot to build it. Mm -hmm. So that's the definition of a product. A product is something that can have currency or meaning in multiple markets with some modifications. Now, maybe the modification is too big or the, the resulting product is too low value, right? A Tesla as a doorstop is kind of a weird cross-market move. They make great doorstops, by the way, but so do a lot of other things, right? So, but a Tesla to tow uh, an electric airplane in you know, up to 60 miles an hour to reduce the amount of battery you need in the airplanes, the airplane could go 600 miles instead of 400 miles. That is a pretty cool use of a Tesla. Now, that's a very defined market. How many electric airplanes do we need to get going 60 miles an hour so that we, know we don't have to use that heavy battery to get them going? The battery can stay on the ground and the plane can go in the air. We don't know yet. That's a nascent market, right? But it is an adjacent market to the electric automobile market. It just turned, and the product itself would work fine with a little, like a little hook on the back, you know, for the cable and stuff like that. So people tend to think of markets, I would say, funny or not very precisely. Henry thinks of markets super precisely. What he just defined is a precise, I'm sure of this following fact. The more buildings he buys, the easier it's going to be to convince somebody to sell a building through him. Right, Henry? Correct. Absolutely. Because they see themselves like each other. Yeah. It's actually, you know, the same principle when we say tactical empathy in a cold call, we want the other party to know that we see the world through their eyes. A market is a means by which each sale causes everybody else to see the world through the eyes of the person who bought. And it makes it easier for them to buy. Mm -hmm. It's yeah, like there's, structural. There's yeah. yeah, yeah, it's powerful stuff. Well, we've talked about one of the laws of sales thermodynamics and market dominance, right? Is that the more traction I get, the less there is for my competition and the more friction my competition in essence has, especially when I do proper follow-up. So I'd imagine, Henry, that as you started this process, right, that the exhaust or the the signals, not the noise, right, as Chris talks about oftentimes, but the signals that you're getting from these folks who aren't quite ready to engage in a conversation yet, but they may be ready next month or next quarter, is that that's part of your market dominance process, correct? Absolutely, and that actually ties into the broader concept that Chris mentioned a little while ago of the air traffic control piece. And part of the reason I needed air traffic control was actually to kind of really help me manage in two completely different capacities, two ends of the, of the pipeline or the spectrum. On the one end, we've got the top of funnel, if we want to call it as such, which is the out there in the trenches, engaging with market participants at a high volume and number and speed. On the other end, because of the caliber of the people I typically deal with. They're usually fairly sophisticated. They typically are high net worth individuals. Um, the value of the underlying assets in question, I can't let any ball ever drop. So I have to kind of figure out a way to operate in both ends of the spectrum. And the air traffic control piece was a kind of a big way to get there. And you're right, getting signal out of noise is a huge piece of it. And we are very cognizant to always try to harvest data, either be it directly, which is, of course, the best, by way of having real conversations with people over time, 
but also be able to begin to infer data, which kind of speaks to a little bit, although maybe a different point that Chris was making about the self-referential self dynamics of, of markets. And as you begin to more tightly define them, you begin to identify not just trends, but you begin, begin to understand what the cohesion is across cohorts. And that helps us begin to, if we can't get direct data, make some pretty intelligent, some cases, guesses or assignments, if you will, of what I call metadata that we can then begin to overlay upon our TAM that lets us really get precise in how we cross-cut that, mm -hmm. uh, which again, lets us then better message and better address concerns with folks. If we still haven't necessarily spoken with them directly, we can begin to partition that messaging in a way that's meaningful for them. So there's there's all these feedback loops. Chris and I, you know, frequently are discussing feedback loop dynamics in many, many different ways, and this would be one one flavor of that. Yeah, I like that. It'd be interesting, I think, for the sales nerds who are fans of this kind of show and these type of discussions that we get into a lot, without disclosing too much of the IP, what surprised you being a seasoned real estate asset acquirer in the marketplace for many years? When you started looking at one man's trash is another man's treasure, and when you looked at this residue, what surprised you that maybe they never taught you about real estate in the past? They never taught you about acquisition strategies or sales or pipeline management, et cetera, that now you can't unsee it. I think that's the thing about these laws of sales thermodynamics that we talk about is once you understand in our world, dial to connect, sales ratio, list size, who picks up the phone, once you see it, you never unsee it no matter what market you go into. What are some of those that maybe you now see with kind of these predator goggles that maybe it didn't in the past? It's an interesting question. It's both specific and broad at the same time. I guess at a certain level, a lot of this has been organically figured out over time by ourselves, myself specifically. There wasn't really a specific roadmap to get there per se as on a somewhat related but separate topic. Chris and I have also had many conversations, including with some other individuals about really the lack of any sort of guidance or training in this particular industry. So a lot of it has been bootstrapped over the course of my career to kind of figure out the signals to look for and the indicators. It wasn't really a formalized, in terms of training, no really real training. Uh, it was really the necessity being the mother of invention was really kind of uh, <laughs> the driving force here. So I'm not really precisely answering your question, Corey, but a, a lot of it I think is what's driven me to kind of get obsessive about capturing and harvesting data really beginning to understand our market in a way that is both specific in the aggregate, but also finite in the ways that we can cross cut it because it begins to give me the type of traction that I need, not necessarily in terms of the engagement with people, but to really understand them even before we ever speak. Mm -hmm. Today's show is also brought to you by UncommonPro.com. Selling a big idea to a skeptical customer or investor is one of the hardest jobs in business. So when it's really time to go big, you need an uncommon methodology to convince others that your ideas will truly change their world. Through a modern and innovative sales and scripting tool set, we offer a guiding hand to ambitious leaders in their quest to reach market dominance. It's time to get uncommon with UncommonPro.com. Never miss an episode. Go to any of your favorite podcast venues and search for Market Dominance Guys or go to marketdominanceguys.com and subscribe.